0: Um, now, what's interesting about this story is that there's contrast between this story and the one previous. Now, if you remember, the story that was, came right before this one was the story of the children coming to Jesus. And the contrast is interesting because you have in one story these children who have nothing coming to Jesus, and he honors them. And in this story, what we're going to get is a rich man comes to Jesus. Let's take a closer look at that. Are you guys all with me? Verse 17. Yes. Okay, let's read. It says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Finally, as we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, somebody asked the question that everybody's wondering, what do I gotta do? Isn't this what it's about? How do I obtain life in the age to come? Now, remember for first century Jews, which Jesus is a first century Jew, um, they split up time in two parts. So you had the present age, which was marked by pain, suffering, um, marked by toil and work, a lot of the ailments that we find in our current age now. And then you have the age to come. And the age to come was uh, life as God intended it to be life with God, enjoying his new creation with him. He will be their people, he will be their God, and they will be his people. That's kind of the mantra of the age to come. So um, this man asking this question, uh, what he's really looking for is when the judgment day comes in the world, in the next age, how do I end up in the kingdom of God rather than the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth? How do I do that? And, um, now, what's interesting is that his question reveals a worldview, And this is the worldview for the Jews at the time. Um, if you were an Essene or a Pharisee or some other sect of Judaism, if you were to be asked this question, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You would have received kind of a two-part answer. One, um, obey the Torah. So, Torah's first five books of the Bible, it's considered the law, obey the Torah and throw in with us, become an Essene, become a Pharisee, Um, throw in with our crew. And so you can imagine this man is expecting to receive some sort of an answer like that. So obey the Torah, okay, and throw in with us. That's what he's expecting, but watch what happens. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now remember, what we're looking into is an honor-shame society. And in an honor-shame society, the best way that you could live is honorably. And the worst way imaginable that you could live is shamed. And kind of within that culture, you have this oriental culture of flattery. And so if you were to come to a man and say, hey, good looking, you would expect that in return, he would say, hey, handsome. There's kind of this mutual form of flattery in your salutation. And so this man comes to Jesus expecting, hey, good teacher. And expecting to receive a little flattery in return. Yeah, I'm a good man, right? But Jesus doesn't flatter the man in return. He actually corrects him. Verse 19, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, what's interesting about um, what Jesus tells this man to do is he kind of gives him the law, but he gives it in an interesting way. Um, First, when we think of this question, the the classic Christian response would be, hey, what can I do to um, inherit eternal life? We would respond, you can't do anything. You can do nothing. It's only grace through faith, right? But what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't say that. No, he says, oh, you know the law. You know the Torah. Obey the Torah. It's interesting. Now, secondly, um, when Jesus lists out these commands, he omits a few. He, he leaves a few out, and he focuses on some interesting ones. Primarily, his focus, on, or his focus is on, one, um, on, on laws that would have made this guy money. And so we think that he's probably asking him, hey, how did you get your money? Was it through stealing? Did you defraud anyone? We're thinking that Jesus is kind of digging into the sky. And, you know, if you think about it, the ancient Near East culture um, was a socialist society. And so uh, goods and services were divvied up amongst the people evenly, maybe. Um, and so if you were rich, well, there was a good chance that you got that wealth through unjust means or in a sneaky maybe unfair way, but the man answers in verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. The man answers, no, he's, he's being honest. Honestly, I've kept those, I've kept the law. I'm, I'm a Torah abiding Jew. I've paid attention. I've, I've, I've done everything that I, that I can to be honest. And notice there's still something missing for him. Why is he having this conversation with Jesus? He's done everything right. Everybody in life is looking at him saying, hey, if anybody's successful, it's him. Still, there's, there, there's, a, there's a gap somewhere. He's missing something. Verse 21 says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. The wording for look here is like he peered into the man's soul. He looked into his heart at the true man and it says that he loved him. And more on that later, continuing on in verse 21. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. One thing you lack. Jesus knows this man's heart and he knows the one thing that's standing in between his heart and being a true disciple of Jesus. Sell everything, give to the poor. Now, what is insane about this is that rabbis in the first century, um, they were known uh, for telling people that they should at most give away 20%. Never more than that. I mean, don't get crazy. That's, That's just not practical. Don't give more than 20%, most rabbis would say. Yet Jesus says, no, give away everything. The bar has been raised Jesus always raises the bar. Sometimes I think we look at the Old Testament and we think, wow, what an insane society to live in with all those different rules and laws. The thing is, is Jesus is even more intense. He raises the bar. Instead, everything is turned on its head and he says, actually, you want, you know what you're missing? You're just missing life. And you want life? You got to give everything up. Don't put your hope in your house. Don't put your hope in the things that you own, or your social mobility, or the clothes that you wear, or the vacations that you can go on. Go on. No, 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 no. You give up everything, and you, and then you follow me. And, and what does he say? He says, "Invest in your future." That's really what he's saying. He say he's he's concerned about the man's treasure. Where is your treasure? Give up everything that your treasure might be. In heaven. Now, notice something. I I find this fascinating. Jesus says to this man, Your actions in this age, this present age, echo and have weight into the next age. They matter into the next. Verse 22 says this At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, that word for sad is, is more like grieving he's grieved. He's desperately looking, but, but the bar has been raised too high. He goes away absolutely grieving, maybe even angry, totally broken by the words of Jesus. In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. To illustrate what's just taken place, Jesus picks the smallest thing in all of Israel, the eyelet at the top of a needle, and then he picks the largest thing in all of Israel, and he says, That's how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's how hard it is. It is near impossible. And Jesus really, he sees this as a teaching moment because the disciples are aghast. They're going, what? I mean, everyone in Jerusalem, everyone in Israel knows that for sure, who's going into the kingdom? Well, it's the righteous and it's the rich. It's the righteous and it's the rich. So this is wrong in the disciples' minds. This is totally backwards from anybody's worldview at this time. And honestly, I feel like that same worldview has continued today in our culture. You know, so many of us, whether we would want to admit it or not, we maybe would never say it out loud or put it in print, but there's this kind of subconscious feeling that wealth equals God's blessing. That if somebody's wealthy, well, God's just blessed them and thus his approvals on them or something. But clearly that's not so in the text. That's not the case in the text. And that's a hard word for a lot of us, I think. Because here's where the, this, is, this is where this teaching strikes me, because I'm rich, you're rich, all of us are rich. And we have this crazy ability in the United States especially to explain our money away. Have you ever noticed that? we have this ability, um, really it's through our comparison uh, to think, you know what, I'm not actually rich, they're rich. Did you see the vacation they went on? Did you see the car in his driveway? Did you hear he made partner? Like, I'm not rich, they're rich. And so all of us kind of feel like we can get out from underneath the weight of this passage. We we can kind of explain it away. Um, But but let me just paint this picture for you real fast. Um, In the next 50 to 70 years, um, the the the, the epicenter of Christianity will have entirely shifted from Western Europe and the United States to um, South America, Africa, and Asia. And and even right now, we're seeing incredible vibrancy in in the African culture. We're seeing new believers in Asia. South America is on fire following after Jesus. And, and, um, you know, you have to think about this. When one of our Rwandan brothers who makes $3 a day hears that when we read this passage, we're saying, ah, it doesn't really apply to us, or I don't know, I'm not actually rich, look at them. I I, I mean, he's got to think, well, if they're not rich, who is? You know what I mean? I just don't think that we can look at a passage like this and say, well, it has nothing to do with us because look at the neighbor down the street or look at the guy over there. I think that we're just merely comparing ourselves to the wrong people. I think that's actually what's happened. So in a sobering way, I think we need to take Jesus' words really seriously, or at least take a better look at them. Verse 26 says this, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? The disciples are in our place. At least I, I identify with them. They're shocked. If you're not shocked by this teaching, you might be reading it wrong. This is a shocking, jarring teaching. It's disturbing. Who then can be saved? And I love Jesus' answer. It's not a cliche. He, it's not a bumper sticker he saw on somebody's camel earlier that day. No, like, like he actually has faith. With God, all things are possible. With, all thing, with, with God, all things are possible. Jesus has incredible faith. Any heart can be changed. No no matter where you've come from this past week or what you've done, what you've been a part of, what's happened to you in the past year or 10 years, like you are not far off. Jesus is near. with, With God, all things are possible. Verse 28 says this, then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Peter's going, hey, that guy rejected you, but what about us? We've given up everything, and they really had. Peter, James, and John... Left a lucrative fishing business. They probably were wealthy by this day's standards. Matthew was a tax collector. He certainly was wealthy. That was like a get-rich-quick strategy. They've, they've left a lot. And, and as, as I want to know, they, they want to know, what about us, Jesus? Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You know, um, in this time period, in the first century, Land and family meant life. Your land was your livelihood. It was how you made money. Uh, Your relatives were your insurance policy. To be cut off from them meant death. It was horrible. And Jesus confirms, hey, whatever you guys have left, it doesn't go unnoticed. Any sacrifice that you have made, I see that. It doesn't go unnoticed. You will, be, you will receive a hundred times as much in this present age. You give up your family, you have God's family. You give up your home, the door is always open. I was, as I was reading this and thinking about this, I was thinking um, in, when I go to Haiti, Bolivia, Peru, Thailand, Rwanda, probably many other places, I got places to stay. I have. Fellow brothers and sisters, family of God, in those places, the door is always open. But Jesus is realistic. He says, hey, the kingdom in this age isn't utopia. There's persecution that happens. There's pain, there's toil within the kingdom. But in the age to come, there's eternal life for those who give up everything and follow after Jesus. Jesus um, is realistic but he's also optimistic about the kingdom. Verse 31 ends like this. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And again, Jesus ends his teachings as he's ended quite a few in the past couple chapters in this way. Turns things upside down. Those who are culturally esteemed in this age will not be in the age to come. Those who are first in this age will be last in the age to come. And the visible irony, I don't know if you you see this, is that uh, you get a story right before this about children with nothing entering into the kingdom, celebrated into the kingdom. And you get a story right after that one about a man who has everything but walks away from the kingdom and doesn't enter it. Now, pause, take a deep breath. I'm going, when I saw this text, I'm going, Jose, really? Uh, (laughs) Guest teaching at sunset, I get to come and talk about money. How fun, right? Um, And I'm not really sure how that hits you, but that hits me in a serious way. I really have to think about where this intersects with my life. Because for the most part, um, I don't know about you, I spend most of my money on me. Most of my money is spent on me. The little that I have, um, I tithe 10% to the church, rarely more than that. Um, And the reason kind of behind that is I go, well, it's just not practical to do more. It's not practical. But the question that I'm then faced with is this, Jesus isn't practical. When you look at this text, this is just not practical. It's just not. I have to check my heart with that. You know, I'm, I'm turning 24 in May, and um, I don't have a ton of friends like this, but I have a few friends who have begun, they've got real adult jobs. They've begun to make quite a bit of money. Um, they've begun to buy nice homes and go on incredible vacations. And, I'd be, and I would be lying if I told you that I didn't. When I look at, when I look at them, I think to myself, man, that looks nice. I wouldn't mind that. And this is not a slam on any of them. They're all phenomenal people who give a ton and have probably more generous hearts uh, than I do. And so I look at their lives and I go, wow, that's nice. And I look at Emily and I say, that's probably not our situation, Um, sorry. Uh, But you look at that and I go, wow, that's so awesome. But the reality is is that I'm um, I'm gonna get married and I'm gonna move downtown. And for the most part, when, when people get married, like rent gets cut in half, ours is just being doubled Um, because it costs a lot of money to live in the city of Portland. It's expensive, the cost of living is so, you have to pay for parking, Do you know that? If you wanna have a car by your house, you pay for that. You don't have a driveway. Um, (laughs) I grew up in the suburbs, as you can tell. Uh, It's a shock to me. So, but I look at that and I say, that's a sacrifice. I gotta count the cost financially. That makes no sense. Wow, God, are you gonna see that? Are you you still gonna be good and bless us? Because I'm kind of nervous about that, I'm nervous. And I think, you know, um, Jesus is unapologetic that it's hard to enter the kingdom. It's not just like a raise your hand once or, hey, I agree with that or I'm orthodox. No, it's like a give everything. It's everything has to be given for the kingdom of God. And it's really a faith issue. The way that I see it is that it's a do you trust God to be good and take care of you? Do you you actually, are you willing to depend on him? Rather than just kind of a cerebral, yeah, I believe in you, but actually to a, I depend on you. And so to kind of wrap things up and just to give you three simple thoughts as we end this message. Um, First, uh, a thought about Jesus and money. There's no way to escape it in this passage that Jesus talks about money. He's really intense about it. Um, And his words about money aren't necessarily good. He's he's not necessarily um, favorably looking upon money. Uh, You know, in fact, Jesus has a ton to say about money, as Brooke mentioned earlier. Every time Jesus mentions sex, he mentions money 10 more times. He talks about it all the time. And now some of you are sitting here thinking, oh great, the one time I come to church every year, you're talking about money. Sorry, this happens like one time a year at this church, just by the way. Uh, We don't talk about it at all. We talk about sex a lot and loveology. And if you don't understand that joke, maybe that's because it's a Bridgetown thing. Um, And I don't even work at this church. I work at another church, so I wouldn't even benefit from your money if, in theory, a pastor could benefit from money from a church. So we're in the clear, okay? Um, Most people want to explain this passage away and say, hey, Jesus is just so drastic because he's dealing with a man who's made money his God. That's why Jesus' words are so crazy. And I think that's that's definitely partly true. Um, Jesus isn't saying that poverty is the ideal way to live. He's just questioning whether wealth is the ideal way to live. He wants to know, has money become an issue for you? Has money become maybe too important for you? Here's how you can know if money's become too important for you. Uh, you, you make sacrifices for work that you wouldn't make for your friends. Uh, you have an incredibly hard time giving away large sums of money. Only small sums and, uh, every now and then. Uh, you think to yourself, you maybe don't verbalize it, but you think, when I make fill in the blank, then I'll give. Money's become an issue for you. You're jealous of the people around you in your field who make more money than you. Um, Or uh, you esteem the people in your field who make more money than you. You still care about money. Um, The more money you make, the less you give. If any of those things are true, man, money's become an issue. It's so money is so powerful. It has the ability to control us even when we don't have any of it. Have you ever thought about that? people will trample, they'll kill, they'll scratch, they'll, they'll do whatever they can to get their hands on money. And so the question I think Jesus is asking all of us is, hey, does money control you or do you control money? Does your stuff control you or do you control your stuff? And it's important to remember, hey, Jesus isn't down on wealthy people at all. He's not, he's not upset with them, he's not down on them at all. He goes to wealthy people's homes, he drinks their wine, he eats their food. And the most important thing to Jesus, though, is does he have your heart or does your stuff have your heart? Does he have your heart or does your money have your heart? And that's why um, this isn't just about money. This message is not simply about money. Um, As far as I know, this is the only place in the entire Bible where Jesus asked a a man to give up everything. You know, even if you think of Zacchaeus, uh, he was only asked to give half. It's the only place. Uh, and so that means that there's no specific amount that you need to give in order to follow Jesus. You gotta give the certain amount and then you can follow Jesus. There's, there's nothing like that. Um, but it means that Jesus is dealing with this man like you would deal with somebody who was addicted to alcohol. He's using drastic means to, to, to jar this man. Now, why is that? Why, why would he do this to this man? Is he just being mean? No, um, it's actually because of his treasure. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, whatever that is, there that's where your heart is. And Jesus knows that, hey, this man's treasure is in the wrong place. His, it's in his stuff and it binds him, it owns him, it controls him. Man, anything that you look to to give you a life of power and joy without God, it becomes a monster. It becomes something that devours you, it locks you up, it puts you in a hold that we're just unable to break. We see this in the story. Because maybe you're here tonight and, and you're thinking, I don't have any money, I just got laid off. Or you're, I'm 19, I don't make any money. Or maybe just nothing's worked out financially for you in this life and you're going, what about me? Well, where's your treasure? Because you have it. Where's the thing that you value? Where do you, where do you find your power? Where do you find your joy? Where do you find your peace? Where's your hope put? You know, um, when I was 19, I went to George Fox University and when I was 19, I uh, moved to Bolivia in South America just for a semester to do like a study abroad thing. I studied Spanish and lived with a family down there, uh, worked in an orphanage. It was a phenomenal time. But what I realized while I was there is that all of my dreams are American dreams. Um, And all the things that I hope for, actually you can only really legitimately hope for those things when you live in this country. And so while I was there, I feel like God just did a crazy work on my heart and just stripped away so much in my life. So much idolatry and things that I had held, like I, I'm finding my joy and my power and my, and my um, peace and, and all of my hope in this one thing. He was just taking that away. And I remember, um, probably the thing that I held closest to my heart was marriage. I have to be married. I have to be married. I'm stressed out. I'm 19. I remember being 19 and thinking, am I ever going to get married? 19. And seriously, and I, was, I, I remember just thinking, I have to get married. Man, when, when I get back, like, I, God, would you please, I, I prayed this so much, God, please bring me a wife, please, um, all the time. And what I really held closely was my sexuality. Because I believed that I had a right, a right to my sexuality and the expression of it. I'm not sure that we do. Um, but, but I believe I have a right to this. And so I remember the day, and um, I, I don't know how God speaks to you, I've never heard his voice like audibly, But I remember um, sitting in my room. It's so hot because it's Bolivia, and uh, the sun had already gone down. It's still hot, Uh, and I remember God speaking to me. I just could feel it. Um, Alex, I don't want you to get married. What? It was just clear. Like it just hit me. Like my heart sunk. I was grieved. Uh, I don't want you to get married, Um, I want you to, and this is bizarre, this is really weird, most people, maybe you've been asked this before, but probably not this, Uh, there was this monastery by my school, I don't even, I knew nothing about monks, but I felt like God said, I want you to go to the monastery and look into becoming a monk, like look at me, do I look like a monk? (laughs) And I remember just sitting there going, what? What? Oh, sorry, no. And I just I went to sleep, and the next day I was walking to work and I and I got that feeling again. Oh, Alex, I don't want you to get married. Give that to me. Give me what you believe to be your right. Give it to me. And I it just went on for a couple days, and I just remember coming to this place, just on my knees, going, okay. Like, okay that's what you want from me, I'll give that to you. I won't get married. That's fine. And I felt like in that moment, God, it was so awesome. Uh, I felt like God was like, Alex, I don't care if you get married. I mean, I care. I want you to get married. But more importantly, I need to know that I have your heart. I need your heart. And if you just idolize marriage and you idolize your sexuality, you would have never enjoyed it. It would have devoured you like a monster. It would have locked you up. Give it to me. So that you can be free. You see, that's the only way to be free. The only way to freedom is through surrender. It's the only way. He asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. He asked this man to give up everything. He asked me to give up my idolatry of marriage and of sexuality. Jesus says, I want the most important thing in your life. What is it? What what, what do you spend your time thinking about? Where does your money go? What's your treasure? I want it. I want it. That's what he wants. Now, why? Oh, is God just being mean? Is he being cruel? Kind of Is this like a sick joke? Why does he want our treasure? The reason is this, friends. It's because he has made you his treasure. Because God has made you his treasure. You now, the key to the entire text is in verse 21 when it says, he looked at the man and he loved him, he peered into this man's heart and he loved him, why, why him? You realize this is the only place in the entire gospel where it says that Jesus loves someone? The only place, why, why this man? You know most of the time if you read through the gospels Jesus is hard on Pharisees, he's hard on rich people, he's hard, hard on the religious people, why, why does he love this man? I would argue, Jesus looks at this man and he loves him, not out of compassion for him, but out of empathy. A deep empathy. Empathy is when you've gone through something similar and you can look at someone and you can say, I know what that's like, I can empathize with you. He has empathy towards this man, why? Because the gospel is that though Jesus was rich, he became poor, Jesus was the first young rich ruler to give up everything, the glories of heaven, the right hand of the Father, power and dominion, to give it up, to come to earth, to get to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the gospel. He looks at this man, and he loves this man because he knows what it takes. He knows what it's like to give up everything to get to you. And he's asking the same as us. He's made us his treasure. Have you made him yours? Have you made him your treasure? You see, that's the thing about love. Love can never be forced. It can never be coerced. Love can only be wooed. And so he comes to earth. He, he veils himself in flesh. He comes to earth to woo your love, to bring you to him. And he says, don't let anything stand in the way of you and me. Give up anything and everything to be willing to, to to part with anything if it means following me. And you have a choice tonight. The man went away grieving, unmoved by Jesus. He went away grieving. But you and I have a choice tonight. Do you see the love that he has for you? Do you see that he's given up everything in order to get to you? Will you love God and make him your treasure? Because he's made you his Isaiah 49 verse 15 says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's what God says to his people. He's made you his treasure. He's delighted in you. What is it that you need to give up because we'd be kidding ourselves if we just moved on past this teaching. What is it in your life? Is it the hope of the degree? Or is it the spouse or the future partner? Is it a home or is it a city? Is it a vacation or time off? What, is, what do you need to give up? What are you holding on to to find your power and your joy through? What is coming in between you making God your treasure? He's given up heaven to get to you. Come to him tonight. Be willing to part with anything if it means closeness with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for us. The gospel just weighs heavy on our hearts, the beauty of it, that you would give up heaven in order to come to us to love us, to pick us up from our state, to cherish us, to make us your treasure. Jesus, the least we can do is respond to you by making you our treasure. Jesus, it's not an easy thing to enter into the kingdom and we see that, but God, would you please humble our hearts? Would you illuminate our minds? Would you show us what we need to sacrifice, what we need to give up, in order to follow you. Jesus, thanks so much for this evening. Thanks for the opportunity to look upon your word and to look at your truth. Help us to follow you better. We love you in your name.